The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning, I have one guest, and we're, so we're going to be talking for the whole hour. Uh, joining me today is Martin Spinelli. He's an award-winning radio producer and author, and his new book is called After the Crash, the heart-rendering true story of how one man's love for his son saved both their lives. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Martin. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Yeah. And Martin, is he's here this morning, but he's, he's, in, uh, he's in England, actually. Um, after the Crash, Martin, uh, for those of us who have read it, is a... It's been described as a handbook for dealing with disaster. I mean, um, and I'll just give a brief introduction, but your whole world changed on a Thursday. I think it was, what, in 2006 when your wife and son were hit from behind by a sleep-deprived truck driver, instantly killing your wife and leaving your son Leo with brain damage so severe he wasn't expected to walk, talk, or even breathe unaided ever again. So... um, We'll start with that. What happened? Um, well, I was um, I was up at a conference in the north of England. I was about to give a big lecture at a big international media conference. I um, uh, was a college professor. I'm a college professor. My my late wife was a college professor, and um, I had worked all my life for this for this moment. It was going to be um, uh, the cherry on the top of a of a really good career. And I was very excited about it, and I never got to give that lecture because two police officers met me in my hotel, and I knew something was wrong immediately because they they lacked that usual policeman's swagger and confidence, and they couldn't look me in the eye, and they were very nervous, and I, I have never seen police officers nervous before. And they told me that there had been a crash on the highway outside of Canterbury, England, and that my wife, Sasha, had been killed, and that my son, Leo, our only son, four years old, um, had very nearly been killed, and that he was clinging to life by a very, very thin thread in a hospital down in London. So, I so what happens when... when- I mean, can you describe what happened at that moment in terms of your <clears throat> feelings, your emotions, when these police officers are telling you something that's just so horrific and I would just so out of your, I would imagine, imagination? I mean, because I'm also relating this to what happened in Boston 48 hours ago to some uh, parents and, and loved ones being confronted with the same story. Absolutely, yeah. Um, um, it was like a physical beating. Uh, being told that news was like being punched in the stomach. Um, I 
collapsed into the the chair behind me, and um, uh, I thought there had been some mistake. Um, and and the police officers called, said that my wife Sarah Roberts had been killed, but my wife went by Sasha. I knew her as Sasha. She wrote under the name of Sasha, uh, but I knew that her her given name, the name on her driver's license, was Sarah. So the police said um, Sarah Roberts had been killed. So I thought, well, maybe there's just been some horrendous mistake. Maybe this is just some other Sarah Roberts, which is a common enough name, um, and maybe it's some other Leo that has been that has been injured. I, I, I didn't I didn't believe it. My I, I couldn't bring myself to believe it. Um, yet I knew it was true, and um, I was just groping with confusion and and. Um, just pain it when it was like a physical pain um, in my stomach in my chest um, uh, it was it was excruciating and excruciating in in this kind of um, this strange way that I, I couldn't describe then and I'm struggling to describe now but it was it was like being underwater and um, it it just completely changed everything about my life and completely changed everything about the way I, I looked at myself and who I was and my place in the world. And um, I, I raced to the hospital after they told me, race, raced to the airport. They flew me down to London, um, raced through the streets of London, sirens blaring to the hospital in London where I found Leo in pediatric intensive care surrounded by this rainbow of computer screens keeping him alive he was under this air blanket regulating his his body temperature because the part of his brain that controlled body temperature had been damaged um, and uh, he was this um, this bruised and beaten and bloody um, fragment of a child um, yet he was my child and um, and in that moment when I saw him lying on his on his hospital bed I knew nothing would ever be the same and um, and my life was completely changed and I guess I mean that's the title of the book after the crash I mean your life before the crash and your life after the crash um, and a complete obviously a completely different life and I, I want to get into that but I also want to talk about, like, before the crash, like your relationship with Sasha and Leo was four when the crash occurred, right? Um, so, you know, give us, like, a history of your your family, the three of you. Yeah, we met, Sasha and I met uh, in graduate school, like lots and lots of people do. Um, we met at the University of Sussex in England. I was doing a uh, um, an M.A., for a year in the English department where she was doing a PhD. Um, we met and uh, we fell in love a, a very beautiful, hot English summer. And um, I, at the end of that year, I went back um, to the U.S., to Buffalo, the State University of Buffalo um, in New York, uh, uh, Buffalo, New York, to um, do my PhD in English. And she had a job at a university in London, so we did the uh, the long distance the long distance love affair thing for too many years. It now seems like, but um, it, it had it had its benefits in that 
uh, we courted through letters, and I've got such lovely letters from her, and um, uh, and it's a, it, was, it was a really kind of slow and solid way to build a really, really great, um, lasting relationship. Um, How long were you married? What was that? How long were you married before the accident? We were married for six years. Six years. Before the accident, yeah, yeah. Um, and Leah was born in 2001, and uh, he was an incredibly joyous addition to our lives, as you can imagine. But I, I had a job in New York City at the time at the City University of New York. Um, Sasha had a job at the University of Kent at Canterbury. And we were lucky enough to be able to stagger, stagger our, um, our teaching and our research so that um, we, um, we spent, um, uh, we were able to get grants and fellowships and leads to write books and work on radio projects and things like that. So we were never, never really apart for, um, for more than a couple of weeks, um, which was great when you have a, when you have a, um, a small child. But as Leah started to approach school age, it started to get harder and harder for us to keep this um, uh, this system going where we were able to get leave um, and be with each other on one side of the ocean or another. So um, I went on the job market in England. She went on the job market in the States, and I ended up getting a job um, uh, very near where our house was in Lewis, England, at the University of Sussex, which was where we met. So I relocated over here. Um, we had one um, six-month, eight-month stretch before I moved over where she couldn't get leave and I couldn't get leave. So she was living with Leo, who was two and a half years old, um, on her own in a little cottage in Kent near the university where she was teaching. And, you know, we, we were both very into our careers. It wasn't just me. She was into it as well. And um, uh, and that seemed like a sensible thing to do at the time. But now, in retrospect, it just seems absolutely crazy that I could have rationally made the decision to to um, uh, just live apart from my wife and small child. Uh, you know, that, for that was my long. question as you were describing. I mean, I, I mean, maybe in retrospect, it was, but obviously, like that's what you're saying. But I was thinking about that. You know, the regrets that one has when you, you and you. You know, the two of you, you have this great relationship and a beautiful son. And, you know, and <clears throat> most people in, are fighting and trying to get away from each other. And, you know, and then, of course, this tragedy happens to you. But I was just thinking, Martin, like, yeah, how much, what happens? You know, I should have been with them all the time or we should have been together all the time. And um, all the stuff that, I, you know, all the emotional stuff that happens when, when, when something, when, like, this tragedy happens. Do you go over your life like I should have, I could have, I, you know, that kind of stuff? Because I think a lot of people do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you can't help but um, rewind the tape and uh, and take a look at everything and all the decisions you made and, and think about how maybe if you've made one decision that you didn't make, uh, maybe if you decided something else, maybe the whole thing might have been um, avoided somehow, um, but you know you just can't. I mean, you can't really live your life second guessing stuff like that. That's that's just a black hole from which you you'll never you'll never escape if you go. But down. how do you get away from that? Because you know when well, I 
as a therapist and, you know, I talk to people who have had not the same experiences but similar experiences, like how do you not go into that black hole so that you're not saying, well, if I had done something 10 minutes, you know, 10 minutes would have made the difference if I had done this, if I had done that. How do you, do you have to go into therapy? Well, I mean, I've been um, in and out of therapy, which has been really, really helpful. But for me, um, the the big therapy was actually the process of writing the book itself. Um, I live in England, and I love England. I, there's there's so much about it that uh, is just absolutely great for me and for Leo. Um, but one of the things that I struggle with is the, the the stereotype, and there's a lot of truth in it that the, that Brits are 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 more closed emotionally. They're, they 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 tend to not like to talk about how they're feeling even more than than Americans, and um, it, that was something that I really struggled with early on in dealing with with my feeling with feelings was finding. People to talk to, and I did therapy in and out. Uh, but the, the, Leah's medical demands were so intense that I couldn't really um, commit to any long-term regular therapy. So I started keeping this blog on the web um, uh, when Leo was in hospital, and the first entry went up um, just um, two weeks, three weeks rather after um, after the crash happened, and. Um, I used that blog mainly to communicate to friends and family back in the States how Leo was doing and how he was progressing and what treatments he was undergoing and what progress he was making. And I, um, I discovered in the process of doing that that it, it kind of lightened me um, that if I could um, put down into words and really think about it in a concrete way and 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 get them out of me. So there's something about getting the words out of you onto paper or onto a computer screen that was really really helpful for me because then I could I could look at them and I could read them and I could think about them and I could say ah yeah I you know this is. Um, this is what's really important to me right now. And the whole of this experience has been a, a tremendous one of, of growth and of change and of personal development on my part. I'm, I'm completely, I'm a completely different person with a completely different set of values than I was six years ago. But, and I, I uh, want to be specific about what it is because, you know, after the crash is, is described as a handbook for dealing with disaster and not as you're describing it, not just surviving it, but mastering it and using it to transform your life for the better. And most people who are listening would say, how can you do that? What is a handbook for disaster given what happened to you? And, I mean, you're describing it. So like, be re- really specific. How? How do you, you know, are you writing a blog, as you say, and making it real and being able to yeah. reflect, I guess, on what you write and go back to it? Um, what else? But also, but also this this kind of need to talk through things um, and, and to kind of get feedback was was also facilitated by um, by it being on the web where people could leave comments and leave messages and the the blog developed this really incredible following um, largely because Leo's recovery was so astonishing and amazing the doctors that um, that were treating him at the hospital um, they found out about his blog and and they were passing it around the URL around to um, to other families who were dealing with similar situations and colleagues in other hospitals 
And before long, we were getting messages from all over the world from people we didn't know who were sympathizing with us, who were empathizing with us, who were sharing their own stories with us, their own stories of loss, their own stories of of grieving, their their own stories of recovery, of completely remarkable, miraculous, unexpected recovery. And getting that positive feedback, getting, getting these messages, just kind of simple little heartfelt thoughts sent our way um, made made the whole process so much more bearable for me. But the it's, other thing... You know, your strength in numbers keeps coming to mind. I mean, 25 years ago, you never would... We, no one would ever have that kind of opportunity. I mean, you were lucky if you had the support of your family and, and some friends, and that was it. And... Like you're saying, I mean, you have you have the support, maybe one or two sentences from people all over the world, and how the impact that it has on you for, I guess, healing and realizing that there were people out there who knew what you were going through. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, uh, just getting that getting that feedback um, was was a, a, you know a, a little a little tonic every day. I could I could look on it, look at the, look at the responses, and just kind of get a little charge of of love from people I didn't know. But uh, the other thing, and, and this is a really, really important thing, and, I, and, and this um, it, it does have parallels to all kinds of tragedy and all kinds of loss, um, similar to what, what's happening in Boston at the moment, I'm sure, and what happened in Newtown months ago, um, that, that, that Leo and I developed this really, really intense and unique relationship um, that he was so physically dependent for he was in a coma for two weeks he was in the hospital for three months um, we were doing three different kinds of therapy every day um, I would massage him um, his limbs and his face I would trace little lines and circles on his face while he's listening to brain stimulating music organized by the occupational therapist um, and as he was making these tiny incremental steps, first breathing on his own, first then um, then opening his eyes, then picking up a spoon, then sitting up, then um, eventually, finally, after a long silence, speaking again. As he was doing each one of these things, with each one of these incremental steps, he was pulling me along emotionally and and physically as i was pulling him along physically as i was helping him in his therapy he was he was helping me emotionally simply by getting better and i'm sure that there is something in that relationship that helped me grieve and come out of the grief on the other end and helped him actually physically get better i'm a, a huge believer now in a way that i never was in the power of of positive thinking and and visualizing best case scenarios as a way of helping you actually really improve and get through things and this is not the kind of thing that that my cynical academic mind would have let me entertain six years ago but now i'm, I'm really convinced that outlook affects outcome and um, you know, when a situation like this happens, you can go a variety of different ways. I mean, you could go into depression and dependency um, and, and just close in on yourself, or you can 
try to find something positive in it and you can try to maybe even take it as an opportunity to figure out what's important for you and, and to, to reinvent yourself. You know, Martin, I'm thinking as you're saying that, um, two things, like, as you said, when something like this happens, like this horrific tragedy, you, you can become isolated, which is not going to, obviously, which is not a good thing. So you did the opposite. You opened yourself up so that you could bring good stuff into your life, whatever it was at the time. We're talking about the, the uh, support you got from people on your blog. But also, when you talk power of positive thinking, do you think also, and this maybe is more I don't, um, specific, in ter- um, like you had a purpose, a goal, and that that's helpful? I mean, here's your son who needs you to help him to get through this. And like when you concentrate your energies on sort of accomplishing, helping him to do that, that also is something that has, is healing, it would seem to me. Um, you know, there were very specific things that needed to, to happen to Leo so that he could get better, and you were part of that? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Having a goal, having something really clear in my mind. And, you know, what... There was nothing else, you know. When the crash happened, everything, everything got taken away. My, my life, my job, um, the comforts that I knew, um, all evaporated in the blink of an eye. There was only me and Leo, and Leo was desperately dependent, and Leo was given these incredibly bleak prognoses. Initially, I was told that he wouldn't live through that first night, that I should consider donating his organs and that um, I, I should um, expect for him to die. Um, and he didn't die. And that in itself was a, was a tiny little gift that he gave me that I, that I snowballed into, into something else that, that I um, used to, to kind of nurture this little kernel of hope that, that I had planted when I, when I got into the hospital. And simply having this project, this really tangible project of working on Leo's recovery, on doing the speech and language therapy, doing the occupational therapy, doing the massage therapy, doing the physical therapy, um, all of that really, really focused my mind and really, really um, helped me um, eliminate or, or not get Consumed by the grief that that I could have felt having lost having lost my wife. Were you ever fearful or terrified? I mean, did you ever, as you're going, you know, you're going through this process with Leo? Did you? Were there times where you terrified, terrified that you know perhaps he won't make it? You know, even though he's made it so far, or you know, all of the. And some irrational fear. I would be lying if I said otherwise. I mean, in those first days, um, you know, I was just consumed with fear. I was absolutely burnt empty by fear. And um, it, it, there's no, you know, there's no, I have no explanation for it. But I just, I just had, I, I just had this grain of hope in me. I just had this kernel of hope in me. Um, and I, I nurtured that and, and I, I prayed over it and I, I wanted, um, uh, not just Leo to get better, but for that hope in me to grow and grow and grow. And, um, I, I can't, I, I really don't know where it came from. I don't know how I, I, I came to it. 
And, and Sasha, the, the very last things that she said to me, apropos of nothing, um, she dropped me off at the train station in Lewis where we lived. She was going to drive off, uh, was driving off to Canterbury where she worked, and she was taking Leo to daycare there. Um, uh, she was going to unpack her, her office, which had been redecorated over the summer. Um, and I was off to this conference, and I, I got out of the car, and um, I had this very odd um, exchange with her where I kissed her, and I told her I loved her, and I, I, um, I, I told her goodbye. And she said this thing that, that I, I kind of I, I gravitate to even to this day. She said, don't let these cynical Brits get you down. Which was odd because you know she was British and and could be quite cynical, um, and I um, often considered myself you know quite uh, you know I, I was no one's fool and I, I often uh, could have been described as cynical myself. But there was something about this 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 last sentence of hers to me: "Don't let these cynical Brits get you down," which I kept repeating and rehearsing in the hospital when I was presented with these dire prognoses when I was presented with um, neurologists saying that, well, you know, the best case he can, you can ever, you should ever allow yourself to hope for is him maybe one day possibly attending a school for the severely handicapped. Um, uh, when I would hear stuff like that, um, I would just remind myself of, of Sasha's last words to me, and um, and somehow it, it was easy. It was it, it was easier to keep those negative prognoses at arm's length. And also, I had Leo growing and improving daily in front of me. So that also kind of fed this this hope, fed this this positive vision of him one day walking out the hospital door. Martin, you had a good experience. I mean, you were able to draw on what Sasha had said before she died. What would you say to people, though, who perhaps didn't have a good experience? They were in a, I don't know if you can answer this, but, you know, oftentimes you may have a fight with your spouse or things weren't going well that particular day or you're the one who, you know, said, you know, take this car and I'll take the other car. How do you handle that? Well, you, you absolutely cannot blame yourself and you have to focus on and think about and remember not your last fight, but your first kiss. Not the argument you had about where to go on vacation, but the, um, uh, the, the first vacation you took together. In Ours was in the Italian Alps, which was really, really tremendously romantic and, and, and so so stunning and so moving and I'm thinking about it now I kind of am transported back to those lovely mountain passes and get goosebumps I mean Sasha and I had our fights we had lots and lots of fights in fact um, most of the fights that we had were were all about where we were going to live where we were going to settle down who was going to uproot whose life and family ties and fantastic career and move to the other side of the ocean, um, and you know every argument we had about where to go to dinner and what car to buy and um, uh, who to visit over the over the holidays was all had at its base this kind of underlying argument or tension about who's going to make the sacrifice and and move to the other side of the ocean. Well, I'm glad um, you mentioned that because I think. 
people, you know, we need to hear that because I think when someone loses someone that they love, so you know, a spouse or a child or whomever, you know, they tend to deify them and that, you know, this person when they were alive did no wrong, which is not realistic, or that our relationship was perfect, which is not realistic. So I think it's really good for you to mention that because I think that, that that you don't have to do that. I mean, that that, that, that you want to. No, and yeah. I, I mean I can understand why you would do that, and I think especially kind of early on, immediately after the tragedy, why something like why that mindset would take over. Um, yeah. But you know, people have real relationships, and, and no one, no one is perfect. And um, just because you you had some fights, you had some imperfect moments. Um, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't mean that those are the things you should dwell on. Um, you know, that real people real people have have real issues and have real problems, but they love each other in spite of those issues. They figure out ways to get through those issues, um, and and each problem that they overcome strengthens their their bond. Um, you know, we 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 certainly had our fights, and we certainly didn't didn't agree about everything. Um, but you know that that just that just means that Sasha was a real person and I was a real person. It doesn't doesn't mean doesn't doesn't mean anything other than that. Yeah, uh, and, and but I think it is important to say that. I mean, and because in your book after the crash, and you are talking about um, this is a handbook for dealing with disaster. It really is, and so we want to talk about the stuff that is realistic, which obviously which you are doing. Um, what about Leo, does he remember his mother? Yes, yeah, he remembers her very, very, very fondly, um, and has a, an un, uncannily mature way of uh, approaching her loss and and her death. And and it startles me sometimes how mature he is. He's eleven now, um, but. It, from when he regained consciousness um, and, and from he, when he kind of regained most of his faculties uh, a month or two after the crash, um, you know, he would think about his mother and he would, he would reminisce with me as if he were some old man um, about, um, do you remember that picnic we had on the South Downs above Lewis, which were the hills above Lewis. You remember that day when we walked to the train, you and me and Mama, and um, and he he can he has these memories which he now doesn't get um, uh, agitated by or um, or desperate about. But but it's a kind of it's a very fond moment for him, and we have lots and lots of photo albums of our lives before the crash and our lives after the crash. And he will often take down the, the, these photo albums and, and look at them in, in this kind of reminiscing way, which I think is, is really remarkable for, for someone who's been through what he's been through and, and who is still as young as he is. And I want to talk about that. We'll take a break now. But, you know, he was four years old and, and um, his mother died and but Sasha was your wife and the grief is different and um, I, I, it was your, as you're describing but uh, we'll talk about that when we come back we are um, talking to author 
Martin Spinelli, and his book is After the Crash, the heart-rendering true story of how one man's love for his son saved both their lives. And I'm Catherine Zock, listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning has been... Uh, Author Martin Spinelli, his book is After the Crash, the heart-rendering true story of how one man's love for his son saved both their lives. And his website is martinspinelli.com if you want more information about Martin and the book, uh, photos, videos, uh, all kinds of information about uh, about Martin and his son and what you've done. Um, so, Martin, before we took the break, I just wanted to, we were talking about, um, I asked you if Leo remembered his mom, and uh, he did, but... He's, he was four, and obviously he remembers her, and he was her son, and he remembers her in a different way than you do. So um, I, I think sometimes adults, when something like this happens and, you lo- and, and say a child loses their parent, um, they don't understand maybe the difference maybe in the grief process or how the mm. child views the loss. It's different than it was for you, isn't it? Or Yeah. Yeah, well, the the hardest part of our story, the the darkest, most excruciating moment for me was not seeing Leo an inch away from death in pediatric intensive care. It was the moment when I had to tell him that his mother died, um, which was incredibly hard. And, I mean, it's hard for me to even um, talk about now. Um, I I write about it a lot in the book because it was such um, an intense and um, uh, and difficult moment for me. Um, I had been telling him at, at, as he came out of a coma. I'd been telling him that um, his mother um, was in another hospital and was badly hurt. Um, I didn't tell him that that she had died, um, and I did this because. Um, he, he was coming to consciousness very, very slowly, and no one was sure what he was able to comprehend. Um, but I also did it 
because I didn't want to deliver to him the kind of emotional blow that I took when those police officers told me that Sasha um, died. Um, I I didn't want to deliver to him an emotional trauma on par with the physical trauma that he'd already experienced. Um, So I wanted to make sure that we were we were ready for it. Both him and I were ready for it. Did and you make that decision on your own, or did the, you consult with the doctors or therapists? I, I consulted with the doctors, and um, you know, from the very beginning, the doctors and the nurses asked me, you know, "How do you want to approach this?" Because Leo is going to ask questions. Leo was asking questions about where his mother was, um, and uh, you know, they didn't answer until they um, talked to me about it. Um, but as Leo was becoming more and more conscious and as his recovery was um, uh, racing along at such an astounding pace, um, it, it got harder and harder for, for them to keep their story straight. Um, and finally, I, I booked a little room in the um, pediatric psychiatric wing of the hospital that we were in. And I wheeled Leo in. He was on a wheelchair because his left leg had been terribly, terribly shattered and mutilated in the crash. And he had this external fixator on it with these um, halo devices and metal prongs sticking out of the flesh um, uh, into these rings around his leg, holding it in place. Um, So I wheeled him into this little room and... You know, I'd been getting a lot of pressure from my family as well to tell him um, because it was harder for them and, and painful for them. Um, so I, I told him, I told him that his mother was no longer with us and um, that she would always be a part of our lives together and would always look down at him from heaven. And um, he just didn't understand it. He just he just didn't take it in. He was playing with this little dollhouse in this room with these wooden dolls and and um, having them kind of jump off the sofa and the table and whatnot. And he didn't he just didn't respond at all. So I thought, well, what do I do? Do I carry on? Do I press on? Or do I do I put it off for another week or two? And I thought, well, no, we've come this far. We should we should carry on. Um, so I told him again. And he he still didn't get it. And I told him a third time, really slowly and really precisely. I said, Leo, I'm telling you something. I'm telling you something really serious and really important. Your your mama has died. And um, he finally, on the third try, got it. And um, he just let the toy, the little toy man that he had in his hands, drop to the floor. And he just tilted his head back, and he just let out this howl. Um, and he just howled and howled and howled for minutes, and I was afraid that I'd, I'd, I'd really lost him. I was afraid that um, uh, the, the psychological blow that I was trying to avoid, I ended up delivering in spades. Um, and um, uh, he, he finally settled down, and we continued to play with this little dollhouse and just talk about the reality of of Sasha no longer being with us, um, and then he started to um, to laugh and to laugh really wildly, um, and it was uh, largely because his brain was struggling to rewire itself. Um, he was still 
dealing with so many really significant neurological issues. Um, but just kind of seeing him going from this state of screaming to the state of hysterical laughter was incredibly unsettling for me. Um, but that passed as well. And um, uh, um, he got a bit teary-eyed again, and we rolled back to his his room uh, on the hospital ward. Um, and I just told everybody that, you know, we just wanted a little rest, just him and I, um, for an hour or two, and to, to not um, not disturb us. And everybody um, was obviously just very happy to oblige. And um, and he, you know, he he went in the in that period where he was struggling to, to come out of his his the worst of his brain damage and and to process this information about the loss of his mother. You know, he had these little blips where um, you know he would. Um, get hysterically laughing again or sing silly little songs about um, uh, the uh, the loss of his mother, which um, uh, were um, really were really upsetting, um, but his neurologist just kept reassuring us that this was just the, the natural process of both the brain rewiring and his four-year-old psyche just struggling to process it all. And then at what point was he able to talk to you? I mean, it, you know, this was part of the process. As you said, the neurologist said a normal process for, for a young child. I mean, and did it get to the point where he would be able to talk about his mom, not only to you but to the staff where he could, you know, he was able to um, incorporate this into his Yeah, psyche. yeah. I mean, it didn't happen when we were in the hospital. That, that happened a couple of months um, afterwards. And um, he started drawing these pictures of him and his mother. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, this really lovely picture, which I've included in the back of the book after the crash, it's the last page, is this beautiful picture that he drew um, of um, his mother with his arm, with her arm around him, and a uh, heart in, in um, Sasha's chest. And um, he's, he's done lots and lots of, um, of drawing uh, to kind of, of him and his mother and, and of all three of us together. And that when he started doing that, shortly after he started doing that, was when he really began to open up um, and be able to talk about, you know, what it meant not having Sasha with us um, um, here anymore. And, you know, I think that that's a, a really important bit of advice I would give to parents who find themselves dealing with this most impossible of situations is to not get anxious about it yourself um, and to just be really gentle and really slow and try and figure out ways in which your child will cope with it and will express their feelings, even if it's not conventional ways that you would expect or ways that you would um, do it yourself, if it's drawing, if it's putting on little plays, if it's um, playing music. Leo's really, really musical and, and loves to play these kind of slow um, uh, um, classical musical pieces that his mother used to play. Um, you know, whatever, whatever avenue um, the child takes to come to terms with the implications for that tragedy in their lives, that's 
what you should try to develop and what you should try to go with, and you shouldn't try to channel it into whatever is easier for you to deal with or or more convenient for you. You really got even just into your own timeline. I think that as I'm hearing you, I mean, it takes time, and it and Leo, I mean. Your child did it in his time, and as you're saying, I guess each child will do it in his own time. Don't make it your timeline as the parent. Yeah. And, uh, and, and not replacing, but I guess introducing, like you're saying, music and some of the things that nurture the soul, I'm thinking, you know, music and art and, and things that are, are soothing are, are, to me, it would seem that those would be helpful to absolutely yeah and you know the other thing that i that i've just kind of fell into for a variety of different reasons um is um we unplugged the tv um uh you know we just i just didn't want to have um the 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 daily diet of um of tragedies on the news and the kind of um uh Aggressive marketing in the advertisements, and even the just like the, the fast cutting of uh, of the way um, TV shows and music videos are edited these days. I mean, I just looked for really, really soothing um, experiences, exactly as you say, and soothing avenues um, and and relaxing um, avenues that that nurture as much as they stimulate and. I'm really lucky with Leo in that he he you know he found himself doing these artistic these creative things and while I'm not at all musical uh, his mother was fantastically musical I can kind of um encourage him uh, to to draw and to make things out of clay and to um express himself in other ways and even even if you know he's not saying um specifically in black and white I hurt. I'm really sad. Um, I don't want this to be like it is. Um, if he's if he's producing something, if he's engaging with it creatively, no matter what that is, um, that is is really to be valued and to be encouraged and and um, uh, to be processed together. And I guess it doesn't help that his dad is a part-time lecturer in media, film, and music. At the no, university. It that, yes, that's a plus. There's another piece, you know, I, in my experience anyway, both personally and, and professionally, but um, and especially with a child and when their parent or their mother or father has died, uh, people who come, friends or relatives, whomever, who make, who are part of the, your social group, they start not talking about the person. They, they, they get scared if I talk about, let's say, Leo's mom. That he's gonna, it's gonna upset him too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't, I don't have my, in my experience, that's not a good thing, but. No, and, and I, I don't, uh, I, you know, at home, you know, there, every room has something that reminds Leo and I of, of Sasha, you know, whether it's, um, a, a, a painting that she did of him or a drawing that he did of her or some of her favorite books. Um, you know, she's around every corner, and and when anybody comes into our home, you know, they they, they see these little reminders too. They're, they don't dominate; they're not in anybody's face, um, uh, but they're there. And um, you know, we're very open about it, and and I I encourage um, people to um, uh, to not be frightened about that as a topic. And you know, I tell Leo, look, you know, it's this is your story. This is. This is your situation. If you want to talk with people about it, you can talk with people about it. If you don't, that's okay too. 
There's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think, you know, your story and, and Sasha's death is also, and I'm, we have, relating it back to what happened or, or has happened in Boston, for instance, um, part of it is it was a violent death and it happened immediately. There was no warning. And I yeah. think sometimes that's different than, let's say, Although it's tragic, but if someone has it has a, a, an illness and um, you have time to adjust, and the person gets sicker and sicker, and this kind of the process is there just to begin with, that's different yeah. than what happened to you. I think you're right, and uh, you know, I think ha- having had friends who have lost loved ones through the course of, of an illness, um, the the thing um, that I've noticed is that the 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 person who is dying has this really remarkable opportunity to reach out to everyone around her or around him and to try and kind of tie up all the loose ends and to and to um and to prepare everyone for her passing in a way that she would like or she feels is important and just having that kind of um, that kind of relationship towards the end, um, you know, I, I don't, th- I, I don't even know that it would make it easier, um, but I think it makes it, it different, yeah. and I think, I think there, you know, the, the, there's, there's a, certainly a different grieving process um, for someone who is snatched away in an instant than for someone who has had the opportunity to, to try and help everyone make a transition. Well, both you and Leo have been transformed. I mean, that's obvious. And he's now 11 years old. So, what what is what what's happening now? He's. I mean, he's. Lee is doing fantastically well. Um, he um, has defied every expectation um, that was given to us in those first days in intensive care. His recovery has been so amazing that um, he was invited to 10 Downing Street to meet with the Prime Minister. He's been invited onto the sidelines of Wembley Stadium, which is the biggest football stadium in Britain, um, to watch games. Um, We do a lot of charity fundraising work for the hospital and for uh, the Reese Daniels Trust, which is a trust that owns um, houses and apartments near intensive care units for families to um, use when their children are in intensive care. Um, uh, you know, he's doing so unbelievably well. He plays the piano to a really high level. His mother would be so proud of him. Um, he does really well in math in schools. Um, uh, he's got lots of friends. He plays soccer on Saturday mornings. He's still, you know, we still got issues. Um, the the brain damage um, has left him with some speech and language difficulties, which we're still struggling to overcome, but which I'm sure we will overcome uh, in time. Um, and, and you know, it's not. It's nothing that's, that's, that feels permanent to me. It just feels like he's a little bit um, behind where he should be in terms of things like subtext and inference and um, kind of the more subtle aspects of reading comprehension. He struggles to figure out what's going on in, in things that he's reading sometimes. Um, his leg also... Um, his left thigh isn't growing anymore because of the uh, the growth plate was damaged in the crash. 
Um, so every four years or so or five years, he has to have his leg artificially lengthened where he's in um, an external frame, a halo-type frame, um, with these struts that um, connect the bone to these metal rings and with screws that you have to adjust to lengthen and straighten the um, the bone every day. And he'll, he'll be in that for about six months. He, he, his next round of that um, is going to happen in a year and a half, um, hopefully not before then. Um, and... You know, we're not, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm confident that the day will come when all of this is just some faded memories for him and some scars on his leg. That's what I'm working towards. And I, I get back to the same thing. It takes time, and it takes a lot of time, and, and, uh, and I appreciate you. I mean, you're describing the details of what happened. I mean, there's one thing, you know, first you, I would imagine you hope for, please, I just want him to live. And yeah. then after that, there is all that you've described over these past year, few years and what has to go on in the future for him to be, I would, completely healthy. Um, are there times where you just, I mean, I would imagine that it would be normal, there would be times you would be frustrated and exhausted and tired, and, and, and how do you help cope with that? Well, um, you, um, you just have to remind yourself that the race is a really long one, um, and uh, in the end, it's it's really not with anybody else. It's only with yourself, and um, as long as you're making progress in a way that satisfies you, that should be enough. Um, there is a real tendency, I think, um, in um, in modern culture, uh, modern parenting, to compare children, to compare kids to each other, and to feel anxious if your child isn't doing as well as your neighbor's child or their schoolmates um, in X, Y, or Z subject. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of anxiety, especially with the testing culture that we're in. I mean, it's, it's bad in the States. It's bad here, too. All of these ridiculous standardized tests, which just um, are, have, have really compromised education, but also make parents unnecessarily nervous about, quote-unquote, how their kids are doing. Um, you and just maybe have because to, you're a professor and those are the circles you travel in as well probably exacerbates it. Also, definitely, definitely. I mean, and not, you know, we, we, you know, we were a family of brains and, you know, we were a family of the written word and, um, it, uh, um, it, it's, it re- it's been really, really hard for me to kind of shift out of that mindset. Um, but, he, you know, he, he does things that, um, that I couldn't do. You know, he, he plays music on the piano um, and on the guitar that I could never play. Um, and he's 11, and he's, he's bilingual. He speaks English and Italian. His mother spoke very good Italian. I have Italian um, uh, relatives. My grandparents were born in Italy. We raised him speaking English and Italian, and he is, remains bilingual. He's the most bilingual kid in his, in his class, but there's me comparing again. And, I mean, the thing is that all, all children, and this is something that I really, it really was driven home to me in, in writing the book and in thinking about our, our situation, is that all children are special. All children have this, um, this magical quality about them. Um, all children are unique. All children are blessings. Um, and when you, when you kind of appreciate that 
as a parent, you don't look at your child and see reading difficulties or comprehension difficulties or a limp or a wheelchair. You see a really special, individual, unique human being. And um, there's that was something that was brought home to me um, uh, through the experience of dealing with the crash, this this kind of clarity of um, of the, the essential human value of children, and I think um, it's it's a real shame that we get so caught up in in comparing and contrasting kids um, with each other and with these with these kind of arbitrary sets of numbers, which in the end really don't mean anything in terms of relationships in terms of how the kids are going to grow up, in terms of how they're going to feel about who they are in the world. Well, I think that is well said, Martin. We're going to have to say goodbye, but I want to just add to that because, I mean, if you think about Leo and the experience, his relationship with you, the experience of losing his mother, think what uh, an incredible parent, uh, the opportunity that he has to be because of all these experiences. I mean, no matter how... He, and he's been able. I mean, this tragic experience is he's been able to, to to get over and to go ahead and, as you say, uh, master and um, transform his life. I mean, he he will bring that into his own. You know, the next generation. I guess is what I'm saying. But um, that's a lovely thought. Thanks so much for sharing the story. There's a lot more, obviously, in your book and. Um, uh, I want to mention it again. The name of the book is After the Crash, the heart-rendering true story of how one man's love for his son saved both their lives. Um, and you can go to Martin's website at martinspinelli.com on the net. Yeah, you can um, also go to afterthecrash.com. It takes you there, too. Okay, afterthecrash.com. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.